the delight and the opportunity that we are each given this evening to lift our voices together in song, even as we have done previously, to in fact approach our Heavenly Father in prayer who has promised to hear the prayers of those who are His faithful children, and not only to hear but to provide an answer to those prayers. It has already been a marvelous evening, and yet before us now stands the opportunity again to open the Word of God, that precious and sacred Word divine, and to be guided and led by the things that we find in it. As we noted last Lord's Day evening, we have begun a series, albeit a brief one, dealing with the Old Testament minor prophet of Haggai. And so tonight we come to the second installment, the second session of that series. We will begin by at least briefly reviewing some of those things that we learned last Lord's Day evening, but we'll continue it by looking at some of the additional features that we also find in this book even tonight. On this opening slide, merely as a matter of introduction, we did see a bit about the setting of the book, trying to place ourselves in the historical framework, and learning, again, some of those features that prompted Haggai to write the things that he wrote. Among those matters, of course, we noted those three critical little words, consider your ways. In fact, that's perhaps the key verse in the entirety of the book. It occurs twice, verses 5 and 7 of chapter 1. The people were thus encouraged to think seriously about the path that they had taken, a path that was not in accordance to what God wished them to do. And so doing, upon consideration, they were in fact encouraged to build again that temple, to complete what they had started. We noticed along that line, we were led to address our priorities. Have we started works for the Lord, but due to our own failures, have failed to complete them? And it also prompted us to again consider the necessity of work. God didn't just miraculously build the temple for them. They had to complete it. They had to invest that work. And we learned that we in the church have work that we are commanded to do as well, Philippians 2.12. Finally, near the close of that lesson, we saw the interesting feature of the bad investments that they had made. God expressly told them in verse 6 of chapter 1, You have put your wages into a bag, but it's a bag with holes in it. And so it is you've wasted the efforts that you could have been bringing glory and honor to the name of God. We questioned ourselves along that same line. Tonight as we pick up the mantle and go forward from here, perhaps we might notice one of the titles or at least one of the descriptions given to the book of Haggai. The last three books of the Old Testament... Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the three post-exilic prophets in the Old Testament. Thus, if you actually see listings of the twelve minor prophets, these three often are cataloged on their own. They are, again, the three post-exilic prophets. That phrase, post-exilic, simply means after the exile. So with Haggai in mind, let's in fact retrace a bit of the history and we'll do that, first of all, by reading the next section in the book. Last Lord's Day, we read verses 1 through 6. Now let's read verses 7 through 11 of chapter 1. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord." Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste. And ye run every man unto his own house. 
Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands." If we were called upon to at least offer a synopsis or a brief discussion of those texts that we just read, it might proceed somewhat like this. The Lord again began by affirming to them, Consider your ways. And in His discussion of the needfulness of that, He pointed out this to them, that they had encountered some difficulties and in fact some enormous problems. Did you notice in verse number 9, God then asked, why? Why have these problems and these difficulties and these terrible matters, in fact, come to be your lot? Why have you experienced them? And he answers his own question, because of mine house that is waste. All these problems for the better part now, 14 years that you have labored beneath, the difficulties that have clouded your path, the dew hasn't come, the crops haven't brought forth, the, your cattle hasn't been fruitful, the matters concerning your own labors have brought forth naught. Why has this happened? God says, because my house is laying here waste. Had you in fact done what you were told to do, had you invested your efforts and time in the places that it ought to have been done, I would have poured out upon you the blessings of heaven and you would have appreciated them and all would have been different. God thus explains to them on this occasion in these verses 7 through 11, a continuing issue of the consequences of their misplaced priorities. They individually were suffering. Their nation was suffering. God has going, is going to have some more to say to them, in fact, shortly. But might you note with me, again, verse number 11. God says, I called for a drought. We might take note. God did not say that this drought was accidental. He didn't say it was a happenstance of meteorology. He did not affirm and it came about simply because of the cycles and whims of weather and climate. He said, I brought this drought upon you. And might we take note that it touched not only themselves, but the cattle, the oil, the new wine. It touched, in fact, the matters even of the fruitfulness of their hands. That must have been a startling thing to hear. You mean, God, you have brought some of these things upon us? God, you have in fact been the originator of some of the difficulties that we've encountered? We'll need to in fact touch that subject more thoroughly as we proceed through the lesson this evening. But at this point, might we notice that these things quickly take us to verses 12 through 15. As chapter 1 proceeds to its conclusion... We do now notice that when God stirred up Haggai, He came and He encouraged them to continue their work, and they did. Though the temple foundation had been laid so many years earlier, but had been dormant for so long, they did proceed to work again on it. Things began to turn around for them. The situation began to improve. The circumstances began to look upward, if you will. And so... You'll notice that two gentlemen are mentioned in verse 12. The first, Zerubbabel. He was the leader, if you will, of those who were involved in the building project. But also the high priest Joshua is mentioned. And certainly our lesson next Lord's Day evening will have much to say about Joshua. 
For this, again, is a different Joshua than the one we encountered back in the book of Joshua. This gentleman was a high priest. He had the rather powerful responsibility of reinvigorating the people in such a way that they would again appreciate worship in Jerusalem where a temple was going to be built. Notice they were no longer in Babylon where they had been for seven decades. Joshua had a great deal of work and a great deal of responsibility at his hands. At this point, three months and 24 days pass. Almost four months elapse, and God now encourages Haggai to deliver another prophecy to them. I would invite you to turn one chapter forward, and let's begin in verse 10 of chapter 2, and listen to what God says to them now. Keep in mind, in the, in the intervening three months and 24 days, they had begun to work again on the temple. They had, in fact, advanced far beyond where it lay when Haggai first encouraged them. But now, beginning in verse 10, the inspired writer says, In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priests answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priests answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. And now I pray you consider from this day and upward... From before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days were, when one came to an heap of twenty measures, there were but ten, and when one came to the press fat for to draw out fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hands, yet ye turned not to me, saith the Lord. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth? From this day will I bless you. Isn't that a touching and rather compelling passage? Doesn't it shake you to your boots to consider that on the one hand God affirmed to them, the source of their maladies, the source of their difficulties, and yet, as He closed it, He held out on the horizon that from this day forward, I will bless you. Just a few comments about that. First of all, you'll notice that two questions. First of all, about those that had food or pottage or otherwise in the skirt of their garment, that it was not made clean simply because or wholly because of its association with the garment. But then Haggai asked the rather penetrating question, Suppose one touch a dead body, or one of those things touch it, does it become unclean? Yes, it does. It was in that way God said, guess what? This people is unclean in the same way. You see, they have not fulfilled the objective, the mission, and the purpose that I had in store for them. They've returned, but they have in fact wasted those wages 
by putting them in a bag with holes in it. In that sense, we learn something new about uncleanness, don't we? We often encounter in the book of Leviticus how that various things can make a person unclean if there were certain <clears throat> matters, certain things that issued forth from the body that could not only make them unclean, but whatever they touched. But here God said, this nation is unclean to me. Why? What have they failed to do? They have not, you see, done that which I commanded them. The very purpose, or one of the main ones that I in fact issued to them when they left Babylon to come back here was to erect a temple and to again institute amongst themselves the kind of mosaic worship and code that I intended a thousand, or rather over 500 years earlier. And with that in mind, they had failed. They'd built their own houses. They'd taken care of themselves, but they had not done the very thing that God commanded. Do we remember that one of the things about the temple complex was there was an altar that was associated with it where the burnt offerings were offered and the peace offerings and the other commanded offerings since they had not in fact rebuilt this. Had they failed to rebuild the altar as well? Had they failed to erect it in its complete form as God would have wished? If so, then there was no opportunity to make proper offerings as God had commanded. Might we take note, for all these reasons, God cataloged them as unclean. It is at that point we come near the bottom to appreciate another set of things that God brought upon them. Found again in verse 17, God speaking said, I smote you with blasting and with mildew. That word blasting doesn't mean bomb blasting as we might hear that word today and is so often occurring in the Middle Eastern part of our world. But rather, that word in the Hebrew simply means blight. The crop suffered blight. They suffered beneath a kind of blight that rendered them far more unproductive than they otherwise would have been. And you'll notice he also mentions mildew, a kind of matter that we appreciate, at least in this area, that can come upon certain things. We perhaps are aware that sometimes tobacco or other crops like that can suffer beneath a variety or type of mildew, and it really renders it almost useless. That was the kind of thing that they were suffering. Beyond that, God says, Hail, I've brought hail upon you. We perhaps can remember what happened in terms of those plagues brought upon the Egyptians when things like hail and locusts and other things not only consumed the crops but left nearly nothing behind. These were things that these people also were here suffering. Perhaps the saddest part of it all is this. Verse 17 closes by saying, Yet ye turned not to me. The whole mission and purpose for God bringing these things upon them was to garner their attention, to wake them up, to stir them to appreciate their mistakes and to turn and walk rightly. And yet it had failed to have that end. They had took it in stride as if some other thing were the cause and had not learned from it. Isn't that a tragedy? That for a number of years God had attempted to shake them to the point of getting their attention and yet they had failed to learn the lessons that they ought to have mastered. With those things stated, and a brief recollection of the history, what might be some applications that could be meaningful to us today? 
so many centuries removed from this time. First of all, let's go back to that set in chapter 1 and reflect a little bit on high expectations. We each, I think, would enjoy a degree of positive spirit and look back to what these people came back from. Seventy years in Babylonian captivity. Think, if you would, about the tragedy and sadness that accompanied their being forcibly removed from Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar and those Babylonian armies came their way beginning in 605 B.C. and overran them, ultimately destroying the temple, hauling off the king and all the others into captivity, leaving only behind the ones that were sick, the ones that were unable to be of assistance to him and his empire, can you think about the hurt that you would perhaps feel as you saw your grandparents left behind while you were forcibly hauled off hundreds of miles, perhaps never to see your homeland again? For all that you knew, you would never be able to revisit the cherished place where the tribes and your families for generations had lived. It was that land that God had promised would be your land and a land that you could occupy with fruitfulness to look forward to the Messiah. And yet here you were hauled away from it. Is it any wonder then when finally Cyrus signed that decree that gave them the permission to return and even allowed them to take lumber and metalworks back with them? Many of them no doubt were so elated, incredibly excited, in fact overjoyed with what opportunity now rested before them. As Ezra chapter 2 pointed out, thousands of them returned. They went back with their animals. They took back with them the various things that they would need. They looked forward to establishing a permanent residence again on that land that they formerly had understood and known. High expectations? Without a doubt. Many of them upon returning would perhaps have considered some of the greatness that would have gone along with rebuilding the temple. I can imagine tears streamed down their faces when they saw it burned. How precious it was when Solomon had built it. How luxurious and how extravagant it was. And to watch it burn to the ground. Now to go back and have the opportunity to remake that kind of worship and to be again God's chosen people. No doubt many of them were so excited, perhaps words would fail us. But now think about what happened upon their return. And might I ask what that could mean for us? Should the Christian be a person of high expectations? Should we be an individual, be we man or woman, that could in fact appreciate a degree of positive spirit and high expectations? Look at just a few passages that perhaps would put before us these thoughts. In Colossians 1, beginning in verse 13, the inspired apostle there made note of what God has done for us. It says, He has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. And verse 14, the next verse explains the mechanism by which it happened. Because through the blood of His Son, we have forgiveness of sins. You and I, as Christians upon earth, of all people, are able to rejoice in that thought. Because notice what occurs next. In passages such as Philippians 3, beginning in verse 13, Paul reflected in that moment upon the matters of what his former life had been and in the place that now was resting before him. He said, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind 
and looking forward to what lies before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We hear in those words an understanding that Paul anguished in spirit over that time in life when he had been guilty of persecuting Christians. He often put them to death, it would appear. He at least persecuted them by allowing them to be imprisoned. We even read on one occasion that he officiated over the matter of the death of Stephen. All the while we find his own guilty conscience as we read Acts 26 beginning in verse 9. He said, I presided over the deaths and over the persecutions of many who were Christians. Paul, for those statements, considered himself the chiefest of sinners in 1, Peter, or 1 Timothy 1 beginning in verse 12. Now as we give thought though, Paul here says, forgetting those things that are behind Paul, of course, meant by that he could never literally forget what he had done, but he knew by the grace of God he had been forgiven. And he knew by the great mercy of the God of heaven and he had been set on a course toward faithfulness with respect to God. And in that way, he could help others come to know the faith that he then enjoyed. He was now a blood-bought member of the body of Christ. With that, he encouraged others, of course, to do the same. We notice one chapter later, in Philippians 4.13, he wrote, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Do we hear in these words a man with a positive outlook and one who knew that there were no horizons too great for the work of God? This man could perhaps even see in the reality of the empire in Rome just what could be accomplished. In fact, didn't he say in Philippians 4.22 that there were even saints in Caesar's household? It may well be that among all places on earth, the least likely place to find a Christian would have been in the very house of Caesar. And yet Paul said there are saints in Caesar's household. No doubt it would seem Paul had a role to play in the reality of those saints. Isn't it interesting that even beyond them, we see in Titus 3 verses 4 through 7, the interesting feature of our life in Christ today. But when the love of God our Savior appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, He rather affirmed, but by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, as well as the washing of regeneration, God shed the love of Christ upon us abundantly. Who among all people on earth has an abundance of the love of God shed upon us? It's the Christian, you and me. Shouldn't we then be those of a positive spirit? Rejoice always in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. The powerful refrain of Philippians 4.4. 4. May we pause and make a dual application. What about the church as a whole? Are we excited about the work at Pippin? And are we thankful? And do we have high expectations concerning it? Our elders do. And it would seem that all of us do as well. There seems to be a spirit of positive outlook here, a warmth, a degree of consideration in regard to the work of God and how special and prized it is. It would seem that there are some congregations for which that can't be said. It doesn't seem as if there are high expectations. There are some who seem content with just holding our own. There are some who seem happy if we can just not lose ground. And yet here at Pippin, 
there would appear to be a desire and expectation in regard to what lay ahead because God will lead us forward and upward and onward. That, you see, is as it should be, isn't it? Haggai, we notice, these people had high expectations. But what about personally? As surely as for our church, we hold high expectations. Do we hold ourselves to that same degree of honor and responsibility? Do I have high expectations for me? And do you hold high expectations for you? Is there someone this year with whom you'd like to study the Word and perhaps aid them in their obedience to the gospel of Christ? Is there a particular activity that's going on that perhaps you know is not correct and you might have a role to play in resetting it or re-altering it, correcting it, or perhaps eliminating it completely? Each of us can might remember that song that we used to sing a great deal. There's a work that we all can do. No work, you see, is too great. The horizons can never be too high because the work of God is that powerful and that mighty. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Isn't it amazing then that as we give thought to that, what about our second lesson? Isn't it interesting that though these people had high expectations, the reality was upon their return, they started with such excitement and with such eagerness. But they laid the foundation of the temple and then the work stopped. Admittedly, part of that was due to the adversaries, but part of it, of course, was their misplaced priorities. Let us give some thought to that as we apply it to us as well. Have there been times in your life or mine when we have sensed a smallness in productivity We take a panoramic view of the last number of months or years of our life and we scratch our head and say, what have I accomplished? Despite my efforts, it seems as if little has been done. Has that led to our frustration? Has it led to our sense of unproductivity? We might appreciate they were in that position. It was here God's told them the reason for that lack of productivity was because my temple is dormant. You have not completed it. Might it be that that has been the source of, at least in parallel case, what has been our problem? We haven't completed what we initially started. On that day, we made our confession and said, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we began the work of the Lord with excitement. But as the months have passed by, we've allowed others to influence us, and now we've done little, maybe nothing. If so, we are in the exact same situation as they. It is true that, as we've noted in our morning lessons, Satan is well aware of where those weaknesses are, and he's well aware of what things can raise those lusts to conception. Paul himself said in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Satan hindered us. Paul had every desire and every wish to personally visit the church in Thessalonica. But he said... Time and again we planned the mission. Time and again we, in fact, set forth a calendar, if I may paraphrase. But he said Satan hindered us. Satan arranged things, brought about various hindrances, and we were unable to come. It may be today that that's one of the reasons some work isn't completed. Satan has hindered you or me. Maybe he's hindered us. But some of it may be that we haven't pursued it as thoroughly 
and as lovingly and with the dedication that we could. For that reason, it's difficult to say in any given circumstance whether it was our failure or whether it was, in fact, Satan's efforts. Only a self-analysis can help us answer. As you and I analyze ourselves and consider our ways, do we find that we haven't been as dedicated as we should? Or has it been that our dedication has met with Satan's resistance? It is a good question, isn't it? Clearly for this people, there was an element of each. God weighed more heavily on their failure and priority, at least for the last several years of their work. As you and I give thought to that same matter, look at just some of the things that those scriptures would lead us to appreciate. We noted the First Thessalonians passage. Might we give thought to 1 Corinthians 16, verse number 9. It was on that occasion... Paul, as he addressed the church in Corinth, was well aware that there were going to be afflictions. Paul knew that there were going to be problems in the sense that others were going to raise them by way of Satan. Paul didn't stop the work because there were problems. Rather, he prepared himself mentally for them, getting ready to meet them head on and conquer them or overcome them or ensure that the work would not go dormant because of them. May we at Pippin have that same mindset. Our elders have that wish that there will be no problem that will hamper and hinder and cause the work to stall. May we lift up their hands just as Moses was lifted up in Exodus 16 so that the battle will continue to be won. That's kind of glory. And that kind of approach brings us to our third lesson as well. One that takes us back to the title of the lesson. National interests, which in fact have an, an arrangement that relates to national problems. I would invite you to notice again the wording that the Lord used in verse 14 of chapter 2. Haggai 2 verse 14. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. This nation, the work that they're doing is unclean, declared, certified, and sealed by the God of heaven. No stronger statement than that can be made. It wasn't their opinion that it was unclean. It wasn't the priest's consideration that it was unclean. It was the statement of God that it was unclean. Admittedly, that made reference to the nation of Israel. And on Wednesday evenings, we have discussed at length in our Roman study how that the physical nation so often rejected God, so often turned aside from Him. And we see just another verse that amplifies that same thought here, that they so often had rendered themselves unclean by their actions. It was in light of that that God strove to gather their attention. Listen to me. Wake up. Look at what you are doing and my temple that's laying uncompleted. God noticed. He says, I've brought a drought upon you. I've sent mildew and hail upon you. I have in fact sent blight upon the crops in hopes that you would wake up, come to your senses just like the prodigal son did, and realize your need to come back to me. And yet all the while they had failed. They had not learned anything, it seems, from those lessons. It is in that regard I would ask you to notice the promise that God had made to them. 
In Deuteronomy 28, beginning particularly at verse 1 and going through verse 13, we notice the promises that God had promised them that if you will obey me and live faithfully, here is what you will enjoy. And among the list was fruitful crops. Among the list was a lack of things like hail. Among the list were matters concerning the beauty and power of a close association and prosperity. But then beginning in verse 15 of that chapter, there is a discussion of what they would experience if they did not obey Him. And among the things listed, your enemies will rise up against you. The difficulties surrounding your crops, they will fail. The matters related to even the animals like hornets, they will come against you. As we give thought to what they were experiencing, should they not have realized we are in fact experiencing some of the things in that list that should have told us we aren't following God? Sadly enough, again, they did not garner that lesson. Could we make at least a brief approach and ask, what about America? You and I have grown up hearing America called a Christian nation. And no doubt she has been blessed above all nations upon earth. We have enjoyed now for well over 225 years a sense of prosperity and bounty unmatched in the history of humanity. There isn't a nation, either modern or ancient, that can match the degree and the prosperity that has gone with us. Natural resources and more abundance than we know how to use. The characteristics of health that has gone with labor throughout the decades a government that at least has sustained us for this long. All of it does challenge us to think, could there be parallels to the ancient era and day? I'm not by any means saying that America is the church, for it isn't. It never was and never will be. But it is interesting to look at how often the parallel in the Old Testament was made. Could it not at least raise us to ask the question today? It would, in fairness, be perhaps pertinent to say that our founding fathers, those like the signers of the Declaration of Independence, those who in fact were behind the putting together of the Constitution, and some other things seemed keenly aware that it was only by the beneficent hand of the God of heaven that this nation not only was established, but that it would continue and prevail. Many of them, in fact, declared that if that association is ever broken, and if God ever removes His hand of blessing from us, then we will crumble and fall despite the military and despite what government may exist at the time. It would seem that our founding fathers would urge us to give some thought about the parallel. Notice just a few of the things that does seem to be the case about us. I understand that there are many blessings to be noted. And we still, in fact, are far better than many materialistically. But it is easy to appreciate this. The nightly news seems to mention it so often that one cannot neglect it. But the crime rate in our land is rampant. And it would seem as if it's increasing. The crimes are heinous. They're incredibly violent in many cases. And yet our land is such that we have almost become numb to it, desensitized to where it doesn't touch us as a society like it once did. As if that particular notion isn't sufficient. Those in education are well aware and it has been so highly documented. We are falling precipitously. 
among the industrialized nations of the world in terms of educational success. Our students perform lower than many nations to the point that it's become embarrassing. Why? Go on further in the list. Our moral fabric, as noted by virtually anyone, is crumbling. We now have instances where matters are paraded in public that once were shameful, again, having become desensitized to it. Issues that were looked upon once as unthinkable. Now not only are topics of conversation, lifestyles openly paraded. Television proclaims it loudly and openly. Those matters only appreciate the following. As our government attempts to address these, the national debt is beyond staggering. You and I can't even imagine how big the debt is at this point. And it seems as if, as we give thought to over $1 trillion and increasing, the matters surrounding it are we don't have enough money to pay for this at this point. What are we going to do? Sometimes one seems there are those who think that there are approaches to it and that there are things that might be said about it. All the while, there are some who proclaim this is a problem. As the national debt challenges us, we notice terrorism is now not only on our doorstep, it's in our midst. It happened on our own soil less than, well, soon to be 10 years ago this year. And other plots, it seems, have brought it even close to home since then. Isn't it interesting that our bad economy... Other things might be listed in addition to these. But might we ask a question? Are these instances and are these things that might challenge us to give some thought to where we are headed, what might be in our future, the things that our children and grandchildren may be called upon to face? May we not lose hope. Again, high expectations should be the lot of Christianity. But it does seem there is cause for concern. And it does seem that all of these things lead us to at least ask the, the latter question. And might we at least take it one step further? That statement would in fact be these. The people of God, in Haggai chapter 2, verse number 19, can you hear in them that as bad as things were at that time, as difficultly as things were, Remember, hail, blasting, mildew, other difficulties. Let's read again verse 19 of chapter 2. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yet, or yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth. Those were things of which they were aware. They knew that they hadn't brought forth as they could and should have. God then says, from this day will I bless you. They had begun their work again on that temple. They would complete it according to the book of Ezra not too many years later. The God of heaven would shine again in brightness upon them and they would turn back to Him and all would again be well. All those national problems would dissolve into ancient history for them. It could happen to America. For God has promised for those who look to Him, He will provide all the physical needs. Matthew 6, verses 24 to 33. In His promise for that, we understand Satan will ever be at the doorstep striving to tempt and to cause individuals and thus families and nations to move apart from God. But for a people dead set on doing what's morally right, that is consciously and directly to 
given to that which God has commanded, God will bless that nation and people. He has us for so long. Might we appreciate that we must strive to turn back the order of our nation to where again the things of rightness are appreciated. Where we don't seek to call evil good and good evil. Isaiah 30 verse 10. But rather we want justice to roll down like waters. Amos 5 24. And we want to understand again what it's like to live in that kind of place. All of that brings us near the close of this lesson. And the final thoughts on that slide. Maybe Solomon said it best in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. It was on that occasion that it was a bright day for ancient Israel. The temple had just been completed and Solomon was officiating over its dedication. Though his lesson and sermon that day was lengthy, one verse is needful for us at this point. He said, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Even Solomon appreciated that Israel was going to fail. They were going in looseness to turn aside from God. But even then he said, if they turn back to you, if they will turn back and repent, forgive them, heal their land, and cleanse their ways. In America, we need a part of that too. May we pray for our leaders as we are wont to do in public prayer here. But notice in 1 Timothy 2 beginning in verse 1, we are admonished to pray for them that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Tonight, are you a part of the problem? Or are you a part of those striving to do what's right? In Haggai's day, they needed to be waked up. God had tried and now finally through the preaching of Haggai and through the preaching of Zechariah, they had been stirred to action. And God said, from this day I'll bless you. Tonight, if you haven't become a Christian, if you will become one tonight and be faithful till death, from this day God will bless you. You can walk down that pathway through this life with all of its difficulties and problems knowing that the one holding your hand is going to lead you to everlasting life. If you have stepped off the path, at one time you were a faithful Christian, but you right now are not. Come back tonight to your first love. We'll be honored to pray to God on your behalf. And as stated in the New Testament, in 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9, upon hearing and your repentance and confession, He will forgive you. If tonight we could be of assistance to you in that way as well, why not follow the advice that God through Haggai gave the people and thankfully this time they began to take it, to come back and hear the blessings and feel the honor and responsibility of serving God faithfully. If we may do the same for you tonight, why not let that be known and come while together we stand and while we sing.